Well, I want to extend a happy Mother's Day to mothers and to those who have had one. I think that covers everyone. It's a good day for all of us to, uh, hopefully, those for those who are mothers to have affirmed to you uh, what we have even sung about here, that your labor is not in vain. It is a long labor. That wasn't intended to be a pun, but there it is. It is a, uh, it is a worthwhile labor and one that the Lord blesses in his own way and adds his own power to as you invest in your own children. Um, I want to wish a happy Mother's Day to my full podcast audience, to everybody who listens to this sermon on podcast. Mom, happy Mother's Day. <clears throat> this morning in Luke, as I continue to fight with getting this mic on the way it's supposed to be, this morning in Luke we have two stories. They are tied together by the topic of the Sabbath, that seventh day of the week that was assigned especially to the people of Israel, on which they were supposed to, uh, to rest, to do no work. These two stories in Luke 6, 1 to 11, look alike. Not only are they tied together by the same topic, but they look alike. They, they walk through their sequence of events along the same steps. There's a setting that's described first, which is typical in a story. And then there's a challenge question that's posed to Jesus by the Pharisees in both stories. And then in both stories, Jesus responds with a question. And then there is a sort of a concluding summary, either a summary that is, that, that's said out loud by Jesus or a summary that simply is, is implied by what Jesus does, but that is very clear. There's a setting, a challenge by the Pharisees, a response question by Jesus, and then a conclusion. The, the stories we will find are also a little bit different from each other as well, because as we move from the first story to the second story, there is an, an escalating Things, things go higher and things go deeper. In the first story, everything that happens in the story is something, in a sense, that you could see with your eyes. There's a dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees. There's teaching. Uh, but it's, it's all the kind of thing that if you had been there and watched it, you would have been able to describe it in the way that, that Luke does. In the second story, things go deeper. The motives of the Pharisees are revealed in the second story. We're, we're told that Jesus knows their thoughts. Of course, there's also a, a miracle in the second story that can't be explained simply by, by what our eyes can see. So in the second story, uh, in the first story, Jesus speaks, and in the second story, Jesus acts. So that transition from speaking only to acting actually parallels another story that we've already seen in Luke, a story in which uh, Jesus tells a man, your sins are forgiven. And people say, how can you do that? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, I want you to know something very important. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so that you may know it, he says to the man, get up and walk. So he does a miracle. He does something that, that can't be done by just anybody to prove that he can do what 
not just anybody can do, to prove that he has authority to forgive sins. Here, in this passage, in these two stories, once again, Jesus makes a remarkable claim to authority. He says, before he said, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Here he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He says that in the first story, and then he proves it in the second story. He proves himself to be the Son of Man who, as we've seen in Daniel 7, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. It's not just raw authority. It's not not simply, well, He's just strong enough so He can tell you what to do and you may as well cooperate. This is authority that expresses the heart of the law because the heart of the law expresses the heart of God. This is authority with a heart. This is authority that wants things for those who are under its authority, that wants good things for them. Because God wants good things for them, and He's expressed it through His law. And here comes Jesus, who shares that same heart, a heart of love for them, a heart of longing for life to be restored for them. This is the heart behind, uh, behind the law. This is the heart of God. This is the heart of Jesus when He comes and says, the Son of Man, referring to Himself, is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus has the authority to explain and apply the heart of the law, the whole law. He has that authority. And so we'll see authority, that authority expressed or claimed in verses 1 to 5. That's where Jesus says, I have that authority. In verses 6 through 10, we're going to see that authority demonstrated or proven. He really, he really is Lord of the Sabbath and Lord of the whole law. And then we'll see a shift in verse 11. In some ways, verse 11 des deserves really its own paragraph because it's different from the rest of the story. It's even different from the story of the paralyzed man who was healed. Something different happens in verse 11 in response to Jesus' authority. So before we dive into those three parts, authority expressed, authority demonstrated, and then authority responded to in verse 11. I just want to read our text. This is Luke 6, verses 1 through 11. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, 
he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Here's where we find them in the first story where authority is expressed. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some of the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. So they're on their way from one place to another. They're walking through or next to people's fields. That's kind of how you got places. And they're picking some heads of grain out of people's fields and eating it which might sound strange to us, like, why are you eating out of other people's gardens? That sounds kind of rude, but it actually was explicitly allowed by the law. This was okay to do. Deuteronomy 23, 25 says, If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So in terms we might use today, it's okay to snack on it. You just can't harvest it. You can't take it and and store it somewhere else. But of course, as people are walking from one place to another, which was the typical way of getting somewhere, there were no McDonald's, there were no 7-Elevens, there was no easy place to stop to satisfy your basic hunger. And so the, the simplest solution was for people to sort of have a standing agreement to share this burden with each other. That, yeah, well, in fact, this is what God has told them to do. Let people eat out of your crops what they can hold in their hand and eat on the way. It's too much of a burden to carry everything that you might eat on a long journey. So allow people to do this. It's okay. So on that count, they're fine. But of course, there's another count that they need to reckon with. This is not only a journey that they're taking. This is a journey that they're taking on the Sabbath. On the day that for the people of Israel at the time under the law of Moses that had been given, uh, they were required to not work. They were required to rest instead. This is in Exodus 20. Of course, dealing with that in real life almost immediately begins to bring up some questions. What does it really mean to rest on the Sabbath? Or to turn it around and ask it in another way, what really counts as work on the Sabbath? Is it okay to get out of bed? Is it okay to like pick up your food to eat it? Is it okay to walk to go to the bathroom? If, you're, if your kid's choking on food that you prepared the day before, is it okay to get up and give them the Heimlich or whatever you would do? What kinds of work are okay to do and what kinds of work are not okay to do? And of course, those kinds of questions would start to show up very quickly if you were trying to be careful to obey what you're told about the Sabbath in Exodus 20. And so, uh, that's, that's what people tried to figure out. Uh, the people of Jewish, uh, the people of Jesus' day, had a, a very large book called the Mishnah. The Mishnah was a big book that described, uh, as best people could figure out how to describe it, what the law was about and how to obey it. Daryl Bach, in his commentary on Luke, uh, makes this note about the Mishnah. He says the Mishnah dedicates a whole unit to listing what is not allowed. In terms, of sab- in terms of Sabbath activity, these regulations prohibit 39 tasks on the day of rest. According to this detailed and specific list, the disciples in this passage, in verse 1, were reaping, threshing, winnowing, and preparing food, a quadruple violation. 
as they're taking grains in their hand and rubbing them out. They're harvesting. They are uh, winnowing. They're separating the wheat from the, the, the chaff. They're threshing. And they're also preparing food. Four of the 39 things that you weren't supposed to do on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees asked Jesus, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, if they're going to be really honest, uh, what, what they mean by not lawful here is what's not lawful as it's defined by the Mishnah, not as it's specifically defined by the Bible. The Bible doesn't have those, that 39-point list of clarification. So Jesus, uh, in a sense, meets them where they are and then raises the bar. They're, they're talking about what's not lawful, specifically according to this second-hand commentary. And Jesus is going to take them back to the Bible and say, I'm going, to, I'm going to raise you one, and I'm not only going to talk about what's lawful with regard to the Sabbath, I'm going to talk about the whole law. And so he says to them, have you not read? Always an important question when we're referring to the Bible. Have you not read what David did? Verse 3. He's referring to a story that's in 1 Samuel uh, 21, uh, when David is actually on the run from Saul, and he, he shows up uh, where, where the, the tabernacle is at the time, and he's hungry, and the men who are with him are hungry, and he needs food, and so the, the priest that's there allows him to eat the bread of the presence that's in the temple. Now, that becomes a little bit complicated because we're told in Leviticus 24, this bread shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. So this wasn't bread that was set aside for David because David wasn't part of the priestly line. Uh, evidently, neither were the men who were with him. This was for Aaron and his sons. This was for the priests to eat. It was their, Leviticus says, their perpetual due. And David does something different than that. David eats it and he gives it to those who are with him. In this story, in 1 Samuel 21, the one that Jesus chooses, David interprets the law and applies it to a specific situation. A specific situation where the core characteristic was that this was a situation of genuine human need. He was hungry, and those who were with him, verse 3. So he took and ate the bread of the presence and also gave it to those who were with him. So the, the, the silent question to the Pharisees is, are you Pharisees willing to accuse David of wrongdoing in what he's done? Because the text doesn't. There are texts that do, that say God was not pleased with what David did. There are other texts that say David's heart struck him after he did something that he realized he really shouldn't do. There's, there's nothing like that in this text. So Pharisees, what would be your basis for accusing David? And of course, they're not doing that. And they probably have read this, but Jesus is asking, have you really gotten the point? Have you gotten the point of the heart of the law. The heart of the law matches the heart of God. And so the law is not given in such a way as to deprive people. 
And in a situation like this, where you have a norm that's established by the law, this is, this is their perpetual due. If you're dealing with a situation in which people need to eat to get along, then the heart of the law itself would say something like this. The heart of this law that reserves this bread for the priest, it would say something like this. I'll wait. I'm, I'm not here to starve people. That's not my heart. Feed them. That's the heart of God. And that's an appropriate way to interpret and to apply this particular rule in the law of Moses to a particular situation. Now, if that's left to us to do, that, that can become dangerous very quickly, right? Because I can describe my needs any way I want. I, I can say, well, you know, yeah, the, the, the law tells me uh, not to bear false testimony. But if I tell the truth in this case, then I'm going to get in all kinds of trouble and I need to stay safe. So, uh, so I'm going to need to uh, disobey the law in this case. And you can imagine all kinds of exceptions that we could come up with in a way that's really, really selfish, really self-serving, really dangerous if we try to interpret the law on our own authority. I, I'm, I'm, I do not have the authority to interpret the law reliably myself. And so we need somebody else to do it for us. And that's who we have here. That, that actually is the bigger point that Jesus is making. He is describing the heart of the law. He's describing the heart of God as it's expressed in the law that is here to care for people. It's here for people's good. And his bigger point is that he is the one who has the authority to reveal and to apply the heart of the law. I think that's why he chooses David in this particular case. David, God's anointed, a man after God's own heart, has exercised a certain kind of authority in interpreting the law as he does in this particular situation. Jesus has that authority in a new and greater way. He'll compare himself to David later in the book and, and say, I am more than the son of David. I am the son of David, but David himself called me his Lord. He's here with that authority in a new and greater way. And so the way he expresses that in verse 5 is to say, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. I'm in charge. I'm, I'm the one who is authorized to tell you what, what the Sabbath is for and how to live it out. In fact, when Jesus says that, the, the situation that he describes with David isn't, isn't even explicitly a Sabbath situation. So he expands this to say, when I say that I'm Lord of the Sabbath, part of what I'm saying is that I am Lord of the whole law. I am authorized to express and apply for you the heart of the law. You can't trust yourself to do that, but you can trust me to do that for you. So here Jesus claims kingly authority to apply the heart of the law. Now, if you're there, uh, perhaps with the Pharisees, with the disciples, looking on, how do you know that Jesus has the authority to do that? So far, everything that's happened has happened with words. And so, in one sense, it's easy to say that, uh, but, but how easy is it to make that actually true? How can you know that Jesus actually has the authority to 
tell you what the law means and to tell you about its heart. Well, in a very similar way to the way that you can know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In this case, it's through the second story. Starting in verse 6. Here, once again, are the Pharisees questioning Jesus on the Sabbath, once again. Like they did in verse 2, why why do you do what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Like they did in chapter 5, verse 21, who is this who blasphemes? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're questioning Jesus, and as they do, they're not really questioning when it comes down to it. In other words, they're not really gathering information. They're gathering dirt, or they're trying to. So, verse 7, they watched him so that they might find a reason to accuse him. And here again, as Simeon promised earlier in the temple, thoughts from many hearts are being revealed. Jesus knows what they are, and he's going to expose what they are, what they're really about. Verse 8, but he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. Jesus has the authority to explain and apply the heart of the law. And now he's going to prove that point. And in order to prove that point, he calls this man up to the center of attention. And he has him stand there for a minute. Imagine that uh, as as a man who has a, a withered hand. You really don't want to be the center of attention. But Jesus has a very important point to make. It's going to be worth it to this man. And it expands beyond him as well. So he calls him up there, and he has him stand there while Jesus asks this pointed question. Verse 9, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it. Only two choices. And he lets that question hang in the air. Luke describes how he pauses looking around at them all, verse 10. So this isn't, this isn't just a rhetorical question, just something interesting for you to ponder on and maybe just table later. This is a question that demands an answer, and in fact, it is a question that everybody in the room, uh, at least Jesus and the Pharisees, that they actually are answering in one of two ways. They are either using the Sabbath to do good or using it to do harm. They're either using it to save life or using the Sabbath to destroy it. And by framing it in this way, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you are using the law in a way that holds people back from life. The way you're using the Sabbath law in particular, but the way you're using the whole law more generally doesn't match the heart of the law. In fact, it's doing the opposite. You would say to this man today, you cannot be healed today. You cannot have restoration of life today. And Jesus would say, the law, with the heart of the law, the the reason that the law exists is for your good. It's not for your superiority. And that's what the Pharisees are trying to use it for. They're trying to use it for their superiority. It's only when you understand that the law exists for your good that you're in a place to extend the heart of the law for the good of others. 
if, if you're using the law for your own superiority. We're the ones who understand this. You should trust us. You should listen to us. Uh, and you should try to live up to the standard that we're setting for you as the superstars of the law. If that's all that you're doing, then you, you are not in a place to extend the good, providing heart of the law to others. When you understand that it is for the restoration of life, then you're in a good place to receive it and to extend it. And that's what Jesus does. He says, at one and the same time, I'll show you the answer to the question, which is lawful on the Sabbath. And I'll show you that I have the authority to give that answer. And he does in verse 11. He said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. Without even saying the words, Jesus communicates the heart of the Sabbath is restoration of life. And that's what I do. So Jesus demonstrates his kingly authority to apply the heart of the law. If you saw that happen, how would you respond? Here's a man with a hand that's withered. Maybe it's paralyzed, but it's obvious that he cannot use this hand. And Jesus tells him, stretch it out, and he does. And it's perfectly healthy, like his other hand. I've never seen anything like that happen. How would you respond? Maybe something like, And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. That's how they responded in chapter 5, verse 26, when the paralyzed man was healed. And it's not the way they respond this time. We've seen authority claimed, we've seen authority proven, and then in verse 11 we see authority rejected. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This word that, that's, that's translated as filled with fury is, is, could be translated as a mindless rage. They are pulling their hair out. They're going nuts. They, they don't know what to do with this, and they are really, really angry and probably feeling deeply threatened, and they don't know what to do about it. They are filled with fury. Interestingly, they do in that very moment exactly what Jesus has said that they are doing with the Sabbath. Jesus puts them in, 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 uh, in a sense, a tough place. Because he accomplishes something without actually doing any work, without expending any effort. Uh, he, he doesn't lean over this man and, and, and spend a lot of physical effort to stretch his arm out. He does something that everybody in the room knows is, is lawful to do on the Sabbath. Even according to the Mishnah, he speaks. And the man does something that's lawful on the Sabbath, he stretches out his hand. And all of this is accomplished without anything prohibited, even by these 39 things in the Mishnah, being violated. And so the Pharisees find themselves in a very difficult position because Jesus has managed to do what, what they say is unlawful on the Sabbath, healing, without doing any work, which is the one thing the Bible says you shouldn't do on the Sabbath which shows that somewhere their way of interpreting the law is flawed. They've totally missed the heart. They don't understand. 
And so the Pharisees refused to trade in their authority for the authority of Jesus. And instead, instead of using the Sabbath in a way that matches its heart, in a way that restores life, they begin on this very Sabbath to try to figure out how to destroy it. They were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. In their rejection of the authority of Jesus, they prove that they reject the authority of the law. In their rejection of the heart of Jesus, they prove that they reject the heart of the law. Bring this back to the particular law about the Sabbath. This law that was supposed to be expressed for the people of Israel under the law of Moses by taking every Saturday uh, to not do any work, to not do any labor. Now, of course, there are questions of how to apply that law in a way that matches the heart of the law. And, and people who knew the heart of the law could, could tell. They could, they could tell what, when it was appropriate to expend some effort on a Saturday in a way that matched that heart. Uh, if your sheep falls into a pit, perhaps it's injured, perhaps it's at risk in this pit, then, then everybody in the room knows it's okay to draw your sheep out of that pit. See your neighbor struggling to get a sheep out of a pit on the Sabbath. It's okay to stop and help your neighbor. It's okay to restore life on this day of rest because that's what the day of rest is for. It's about the restoration of life. That's, that's what it's been about from the very beginning. Fundamentally, it's about the fact that God is the God who finishes his work well. Restoration of life is, in so many ways, about creating a place, an acceptable place, an acceptable context for people to dwell with God. That's what God is working to do in Genesis 1. He's developing this place where people made in his image can dwell with him. And as he makes each part, he looks at it and he says, it's good. And he looks at it and he says, it's good. And when he's finally created this whole place, he looks at it and he says, it's very good. It's good enough. This is the kind of place where my people can dwell with me. And so he rests because his work is finished at that point. This is a good place for people made in his image to dwell with him. And so he rests. We, you know this, if you work, we never quite finish our work, do we? We're never quite done. And so that's one of the reasons the people of Israel had to be told, you need to rest every week. You need to rest for one full day out of every seven. And you need to let those who work for you rest as well. Uh, Because the, the temptation is to say, I'm not done. I'm not done with my work. I'm not done making sure that, that, that my life is going to be okay. I need to do more in order to finish making sure that life is, is preserved and that life is restored. And God's message to them is, you join me in my work, but you're not the finisher of it. I am the one who finishes the work. I am the one who will guarantee that, that the work that you do is worthwhile. I am the finisher of the work. That's still true of us today. It's still true of us who 
who, I believe, apply the principle of the Sabbath primarily by trusting in the finished work of Jesus. In such a way that Paul can say to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, the, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In the Lord your labor is not in vain. Outside of the Lord, your labor will never be finished, and in the end will end up being in vain. But if you are in the one who has purchased the Sabbath, who has fulfilled the whole law, if you are in the one who has purchased rest for you, then your labor, even the labor that somehow you know you're never quite done doing, is not in vain. There remains, the author to the Hebrews says, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. The heart of the Sabbath, the heart of the law, is to restore life. Jesus is the one who has made that fully possible. The law could not ultimately do that for us, but Jesus is the one who does. And Jesus is the one that we offer to others. So this is something to watch for as we extend not the law of Moses, but the fulfilled law in Jesus, that Jesus exists for our good and not for our superiority. We don't hold him out and say, look, we, we are the ones who can interpret Jesus for you. We're, we're the ones who found this out and we're better than you because we, we have Jesus as our mascot. Uh, we're, we're, look at us at, as superior. We have more to offer people than that. We have Jesus himself who is for our good, who is for the good of others, that we can receive for our good and give away without losing anything. We can give away in Jesus the restoration of life. Father, we thank you for giving us the one who has authority on earth to forgive sins. We thank you for giving us the one who is authorized to reveal and apply the heart of the law. We thank you for giving us the one who has purchased the forgiveness of sins, who has purchased the fulfillment of the law, so that it might be said of us that our labor in him is not in vain. Let us do that labor and let us do that resting all by trust in Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.